Welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way, we'll learn something about each other. We sincerely hope we accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed herein are mine alone as a veteran. So before we get started this evening, here's some veterans news for you. Uh, There is new hope for veterans affected by exposure to airborne particulates produced by burn pits. The Honoring Our Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxins Act, also known as H.R. 3957, passed the United States Senate by a substantial margin and now awaits action by the House where swift passage is anticipated. This bill includes a wide range of long-awaited and long overdue improvements including 19 new presumptive conditions for veterans exposed to toxic fumes from burn pits. Veterans who will be covered within the presumption include veterans who served on or after August 2nd 1990 on active duty in any of the following locations including the airspace above Iraq, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, and the United Arab Emirates. Veterans who served on or after September 11, 2001, on active duty in any of the following locales, including airspace above, Afghanistan, Djibouti, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and Uzbekistan. They're also adding hypertension and monoclonal gonopathy as a presumptive condition for Vietnam veterans. They're extending geographic eligibility for a presumption of radioactive exposure. Veterans who were engaged in the response effort following the collision of United States Air Force B-52 bomber and a refueling plane that caused the release of four thermonuclear weapons in the vicinity of Palomaris, Spain, during the period between January 17, 1966, ending March 31, 1967, will now qualify for being presumed to have been exposed to the effects of harmful radiation. The same will hold true for veterans who were engaged in the response effort following the onboard fire and crash of a U.S. Air Force B-52 bomber that caused the release of thermonuclear weapons in the vicinity of Thule Air Force Base in Greenland during the period beginning January 21, 1968 and ending September 25, 1968. Recognition of new geographic areas for the presumption of Agent Orange exposure. The Honoring Our Pact Act extends the presumption of Agent Orange exposure during Vietnam War service to multiple new geographic areas. Expanding health care eligibility for veterans exposed in service to toxins. The Honoring Our Pact Act opens the gates for additional 3.5 million veterans nationwide to become eligible for Priority Group 6 in Veterans Health Administration care. All of the veterans covered under the expansion 
will be veterans who were exposed to toxins in service from Agent Orange exposure to burn pit exposures. If you have specific questions regarding this important information, please reach out to Benjamin Pomerantz. He is Deputy Director for Program Development, New York State Veterans Affairs. He can be reached at benjamin.pomerantz at veterans.ny.gov. And you can get him on the phone, 518-474-6114. On Saturday, August 7th, Monticello Rotary and Resorts World Catskills will present Monster Classic 5-10K walk-run event. Enjoy a great day in beautiful Sullivan County while helping our veterans with a voluntary pledge to the Sullivan County Veterans Coalition. Pre-registration for walkers is $25, runners $30. Registration on the day of the race, walkers $30, runners $35, children under $10, $10. More information called Orshi Baldis, 845-239-2107. Or Les Christ, 845-794-6639. Or you can check out their website, which is raceroster.com. And as we often hear on TV, but wait, there's more. On Saturday, August 6th, the night before the Monster Classic, the duo Wester, starring Pearl Clarkin and Rafe Wester, will perform live at Resorts World Catskill from 7 to 10 p.m. This concert fundraiser is free, however, voluntary donations for the benefit of the Sullivan County Veterans Coalition. Those who are planning to participate in the 2022 Monster Classic the next day may pick up their race vests beginning at 6.30 p.m. at the concert venue. There will also be a silent auction and a 50-50 raffle. Resorts World Catskills and Monticello Rotary are making this event possible. Against all odds, these three words are well-suited to describe this experiment we call the United States of America. Over the past 246 years, we have prevailed in too many wars and other existential threats in which the odds were decidedly not in our favor. Historians have opined on the reasons that we have achieved victory, but I believe the magic ingredients is the unified resolve, pride, and purpose manifest in the American spirit. Now, we just celebrated the 4th of July, the date we consider the genesis of our journey as a country. Do we as Americans today truly appreciate the epic struggles and sacrifice which resulted in the birth and preservation of our nation? Or is it just becoming another long weekend? For too many, I fear it is the latter. So tonight our mission is to remind everyone in the short time that we have the essential nature of our Constitution and our founding principles. Let's start with some lesser-known facts about the American Revolution. A while back we interviewed Patrick O'Donnell, historian and author of the book The Indispensables. The book chronicles the seeds of the Revolutionary War, the atrocities of the British occupation, and the heroism of common citizens to declare independence and fight for seven years to achieve victory against all odds. A raging virus, mobs, political violence, disarmament, and misinformation all divided Americans. 
Was that a quote from last week or last summer? It could be, right? But such were the conditions in Marblehead, Massachusetts in 1769. Sounds too familiar, however, uh, with this quote. Patrick O'Donnell opens up this book. The Indispensables, the diverse soldier mariners who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. And um, it doesn't say what they did in their spare time, Patrick. They didn't have much spare time. They were trying to save the country. This is uh, an epic story that was untold until the Indispensables. And these men were in the great inflection points of the American Revolution. Beginning in 1769, you know, the reader is put back in time on a rolling deck of a ship called the Pit Packet. And it's not a pleasant voyage for these Marblehead sailors. They're fishermen. They're also merchants. They're coming back. But the ship is boarded by the Royal Navy. They're there to to impress them, to enslave them, and usually ends with death. And nobody gets to go home and see their families or anything else. It's really an unpleasant experience. But this is kind of the tyranny of the time. And these men are about to be pressed into service, but they fight back. The Royal Navy is boarding the ship, and uh, the, the officer in charge is about to step forward, but there's they're hauling salt from Cadiz, Spain, and uh, one of the bags of salt spilled across the deck, and one of our guys in the book literally takes his foot and puts a line in the salt. It says, if you cross the line, you're a dead man. And these men were armed with harpoons, and they were really good at you know what they did with those harpoons uh, and hatchets and other things that fishermen have. And the Royal Naval officer was pretty cocky, and he crossed the line. He had a harpoon in his throat within a second, and he died. He bled out. And that's the beginning of this book. And um, what's really extraordinary is America's first super lawyer steps in, John Adams, and he basically gets these men acquitted of murder. But that's the beginning of the story, which shapes what these men were going through. Uh, their, their lives were subject to the crown's whims. And uh, they were fighting back. And it's a very powerful story. So would it be accurate to say that um, that event that you just recounted kind of symbolizes the frustration level of the colonists and the tipping point they were approaching as a result of government overreach and oppression of the crown? Absolutely. Uh, Their lives were completely being dominated by the crown in many, many ways, through taxes, through impressment. And then as, as time goes on, a series of events take place that these men are all part of. One is the Boston Massacre, where British soldiers fire upon unarmed civilians, Americans, and kill them in cold blood. Interestingly enough, John Adams is also there to to, uh, actually acquit the British soldiers this time that did that act. But then there's the Boston Tea Party, and there's a lot of nuance to that, which I won't get into, but uh, you know, these men were in the vortex of that as well. And they only do is destroy property in in terms of the tea. They don't destroy the ships. They don't. They actually very carefully put locks back on uh, where they took the tea out. They wanted to make a statement, but you know, unfortunately, that statement is met with complete and overwhelming force by the crown. They decide to shut down Boston Harbor and throw everybody out of work. And they later go on and and basically shut down the fishery that these men, uh, the Marbleheaders, derive their living at the Grand Banks. 
And then it gets even worse. The crown knows that a rebellion is brewing and they decide to, to seize all the gunpowder supplies and cut off gunpowder. So anybody that's out there knows that they're going to be disarmed, basically, and defenseless. And it's the Marbleheaders that are bringing in the majority of gunpowder. They're smuggling in through their contacts in Spain in 1774. But, you know, and as all of this is unfolding, in 1773 and 74, a virus hits Marblehead. And it just divides everybody even more politically. There's a division between loyalists and patriots. And there's really some extraordinary scenes in this book uh, with mob violence. They burned down the inoculation hospital that the Patriots build in the town. And uh, they, they surround the homes of the, of the main characters in this book. And uh, there's some really compelling scenes. So it seems like this band of brothers, as I've heard it referred to, the Marbleheaders were very much a product of living in this bustling port, Marblehead, Massachusetts, and living in the diversity, uh, one of the points you make in your book is that it was not lost on anybody that you could start from the bottom up and become a prominent citizen, and prominent citizens and, and captains of industry and, and fleet owners could just as quickly lose their fortunes based upon the, uh, the sea and mother nature and uh, the turns of commerce. These guys were also very adaptable. How important were these qualities and how valuable would their upbringing and their living in this demographic turn out to be to Washington and to winning the war? It's incredibly important to the entire effort. This is about resilience and about individuals that are just hardened by the sea. Uh, they derive their living by the sea. They fish the Grand Banks. And this is about a thousand miles away from Marblehead, which is not too far from Boston. And this is where they fish by hand massive codfish, which can be anywhere between 100 pounds to two or 300 pounds in some cases. And they, they, you know, haul them on board the ships and then bring them home. But in the midst of all this, these guys have to make split second decisions, life and death decisions, because the sea is so unforgiving. And literally, Scores of men die at sea. The ships are capsized or they just, they're lost at sea, but it, it hardens these men. The crews are uh, diverse. It's African-Americans, it's some Native Americans in there. There's men from Spain, you know, all over the place, really, because uh, it's an international port, if you will. And uh, what's really amazing is the teamwork and the bonds that are forged in this cauldron at sea. But it's also about free enterprise. These men are making a living the hard way, and they're earning it. And they're, my main character, John Glover, starts out as a, as a humble shoemaker that you know, is able to scrape up enough money to buy a bar and a tavern. And then eventually he buys a ship, and he buys like six ships. And it, it's, it just goes on from there. And many men are like that. And the town really values this kind of free enterprise, people that are self-made men. We try to get in ordinary stories of women in this book as well, but they're fewer because unfortunately there's not as many written accounts. But these are, uh, you know, very determined individuals that are resilient. You know, on multiple occasions, they saved the United States. The first being in August 1776, we saw how dangerous a withdrawal under fire in, in the face of an enemy army is. 
if you look at Afghanistan, for instance, this is what they had to deal with, but like on steroids 10 times harder in the Battle of Brooklyn. The entire American army, or I shouldn't say the bulk of it, was in Brooklyn, and they had just lost a, a disastrous battle, the Battle of Brooklyn. Um, I wrote a book called Washington's Immortals on Marylanders who made an epic stand that bought us an hour more precious in our history than any other. That stand allowed uh, the American forces under George Washington to escape to Brooklyn Heights. And it was there that Washington made the decision to evacuate. And that evacuation rested on the, sh on the shoulders of these men from Marblehead because they were the most experienced seamen in the, in the colonies. And they had to take 10,000, nearly 10,000 men, the wounded, the cannon, the horses, everything across the raging East River, which is over a mile wide at this point. In the dead of night, you know, not far away was this massive British army, which was about to, to strike upon them. And if had they struck uh, while they were evacuating, they would have crushed the army and, uh, and literally probably ended the war right then and there. So everything rested upon the Marbleheaders on uh, August 29th and 30th. And they make an amazing evacuation. It's it's called the American Dunkirk. And it um, would seem it would seem they, that uh, divine provocation intervened there, <laughs> unexplicably a, a miracle of sorts, huh? It does. Uh, what what happens is it's a race against time. Uh, they, these men start you know around 10 p.m. the night before, and they have to transport 10,000 men. They literally have to cross the river, in some cases nearly a dozen times. They have to do it in front of the British Army and the Royal Navy is parked only a mile or two downriver. Initially, the tides don't work, the, the wind doesn't work, but things change around. And, and what happens next is a, really a truly a miracle. A fog sets in as dawn comes up and screens the movement of the Marbleheaders as their ships literally ferry the army across from the, the prying eyes of the British. And they're able to transport uh, the army across safely. It's really a truly a miracle. It's one of the greatest evacuations in history. It's an extraordinary event uh, that many Americans don't know about. So they've, they've gotten to Manhattan and then eventually to New Jersey. What happens in the interim between that and Trenton? A lot. It's one defeat really after another for the American army. And that's what I chronicle in The Indispensables. It's some of the darkest days in American history. The political climate is changing. One defeat after another that George Washington is basically supervising is causing the mood of the country to change. And people are, uh, are feeling that this whole revolution thing isn't going to work. And the tides changed. You know, shortly after the Battle of Brooklyn, the British invaded a place called Kipps Bay, Murray Hill in today's Manhattan. And the army is shattered once again. It's the Marbleheaders and the Indispensables that, that are part of the rear guard that allow the army to escape once again. And these men are involved in a series of really epic actions and in battles. For instance, in another place called Throng's Neck, uh, 25 Americans <laughs> under Colonel Edward Hand are expert crack riflemen, and they literally hold off 4,000 British soldiers that are landing at Throng's Neck. Uh, they, they're, they're shooting these guys. They're behind a, uh, an obstruction on a causeway. It's a, a bottleneck of death in many ways. And uh, they're able to bring up reinforcements, including the indispensables. And the British are stopped. It's a, really one of those rare occasions in, in military history where an amphibious land by the Royal Navy is stopped. 
And a week later, they land again at a place called Pelham Bay. And it's the Marbleheaders that once again saved the Army. They fight behind what's now known as the Pelham Bay Golf Course. It's still there, but some of the stone fence still exists. And it was here that uh, John Glover's men hid behind those stone fences and fell back as the British tried to advance and then gored them, basically. And uh, it allowed Washington to once again escape to White Plains. And it's here here again, the the, uh, Marbleheaders play an important role. But it all is sort of kind of building up. The darkest period in American history, arguably, is right around Christmas, 1776. You know, all of these defeats are really adding up. The money is running out for the revolution, and so are the enlistments within the army. And uh, Washington's army, which started out at around 20,000 men in New York, is now down to its shell of itself. Several thousand men are there. And Washington has to make a uh, move or offensive that will change somehow the, the course of the revolution. And it's at Trenton that he he puts his move into play and it's it's really one of the greatest battles in american history once again a river it plays a role and again the marbleheaders that have to transport the army across that river of the delaware when we talk about the marbleheaders now were they officially a unit or were they just interspersed throughout other units and just happened to be at the right place at the no. right time no they were the 14th continental regiment They were almost entirely made up of men from Marblehead, Massachusetts. One company came from nearby Beverly, which is roughly about 60 men. But it was mainly a homogeneous unit made up of Marbleheaders, and that's what made it one of the greatest fighting regiments of all time. Their unity, uh, their strength, and even their diversity in the sense, you know, these are made up of African-Americans, Native Americans, as as well as white Americans and, and other sort of interesting groups out there. Rich and poor fought side by side. But this was very much a unit, the 14th Continental, and uh, they were given the job of, of t- taking the the army across the river. But there were other elements of Washington's army that night that were trying to cross the Delaware. And I think it's important that the reader of the Indispensables know, or the listener of the show, knows that every single operation that were, the boats were not crewed by Marbleheaders failed. Huge portions of Washington's army did not cross on Christmas Day because they couldn't. It was impassable. It was only the skills of the Marbleheaders that got that portion of the army across. And the entire operation would have failed had it not been for them being there at the right place at the right time. They get them across. They get about 2,500 of Washington's men across above Trenton. And everything is is falling behind schedule and uh, they're able to make their way towards Trenton uh, not too long after after dawn. And uh, they surprised the Hessian garrison. These were very highly trained soldiers, these Hessian German allies that the British had. And uh, they were some of the best soldiers in the, the British Army. But Washington is able to attack. And it's, there's really some epic story scenes. But it's the Marbleheaders that do something extraordinary again, and they seize a bridge at Aston Peak. And this is the, they cut off the escape route of the, uh, the Hessians, and they set up a series of cannon. And it becomes a double envelopment. And most of Johann Rawls' regiment is surrounded and is either killed or surrenders. And it becomes a decisive and crucial victory but just one of really three 
in the next 10 crucial days of the revolution, the entire course of history changes. And it's the Marbleheaders that are in the uh, the vortex of those battles at Assunpeak Creek again, Princeton. And I think what makes the story really amazing, too, is after all these battles take place, this raging virus that hit Marblehead in 1773 and 1774 is smallpox. And my main character in this book is a guy that nobody has ever written about, Dr. Nathaniel Bond, and, and it's Dr. Nathaniel Bond that saves our country. Um, his specialty is smallpox. His specialty is inoculation. And at 1777, after the Battle of Princeton, the army was being wiped out by smallpox. And more, more people were dying from smallpox than British bullets. And Washington makes the decision to inoculate the army. And that job falls upon Dr. Bond. And Dr. Bond's story is awesome. In, in the Battle of Lexington and Concord, he treated British soldiers because he was following his Hippocratic Oath. And for it, he was labeled a loyalist, even though he was an ardent patriot. And uh, he was canceled, to use the modern parlance. His house was surrounded by an angry mob, and he was threatened with death. And I have a four-page letter that he wrote that uh, I own the original. And he urged Elbridge Gerry, another main character in this book, to to send uh, an armed group of men to to allow him to come to a court-martial to to say what happened. And he does that, and he's exonerated. And you know, this is a guy that's been canceled. Instead of walking away from the revolution, he becomes a fighting surgeon and a company commander with the Marblehead Regiment and fights through the entire war. And it's on his shoulders after the Battle of Princeton to inoculate the army, which he does. It's an extraordinary thing and allows them to fight the British without being wiped out by smallpox. But for his service, he dies. Uh, we think by smallpox and his story uh had not ever been heard until uh, I wrote The Indispensables. A lot of people, myself included, we look at that famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware and the and the recount. We say, well, well, that was the end of it, but it wasn't the end of it, right? So when did it? When do we finally get to the point where the British are done? You know, this is what most people don't realize, Doug, is that this is eight years of brutal war between the greatest power in the world at the time and somehow we miraculously fight through this thing. And, you know, I mean, the, the true turning point militarily is the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, but the war doesn't officially end until 1783. And, you know, this is basically eight long years of war, of extreme economic hardship. Marblehead itself is devastated by the Revolutionary War. I, I, I chronicle how you know, this is the second wealthiest port in Massachusetts. It is now devastated after the war. There's a food riot that the women of Marblehead actually initiate in 1776, 1777, because they're starving. And they uh, they have an armed uprising, and they raid the grain stores there uh, for food. But the town is devastated. There are, um, I think in one count, they had over 600 children that were fatherless from men that had been lost at sea at the, during the revolution or on land fighting the British. Extreme sacrifice and hardship. Most Americans have no clue the sacrifice and hardship. They take it for granted, which is, you know, it's, it's seen in elements of um, 
things like the 1619 project, et cetera. It's, it's, a, it's a shame. It's a miracle that we won uh, the American Revolution and the fact that it's, you know, it was really about freedom and liberty and, and so many other things that uh, would later change the world. Our revolution would change the world. Great to talk to you, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk Vets. Thanks. Patrick O'Donnell. If you really want to understand the sacrifices of countless Americans to establish our republic and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, over 246 years, a visit to the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor in New Windsor is in order. Along with many historical artifacts, 20 actual recipients chronicled their entry into the U.S. military, how and when they were wounded, their medical treatment, and their return to the civilian world. Listen now as Program Director Peter Bedrosian provides some important context. We're at the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, and here with a gentleman I haven't seen since August of 2018, <laughs> Peter Bedrosian, who's the Program Director. Hi, yep. Pete. Hi. Nice to be back four years ago, huh? Yeah. Wow. Well, I talked to you in between oh, yeah. once or twice. So. This is a very special place in many ways. On our first, it was actually my first program, <laughs> we did a virtual walkthrough of oh, yeah. what was then yeah. the National Purple Heart Hall of Honor. And you guys have gone through a lot of iterations mm -hmm. since then, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to start at the beginning. I mean, uh, you are adjacent to the New Windsor Catonment, right? Yep. Which yep. was... George Washington's last headquarters. No, the headquarters actually were six miles away in Newburgh, the Hasbrook House. Oh, okay. The army was here about six miles away. Uh, they leased 1,600 acres of land, and the reason was it was a one spot relatively close to the river okay. that was fully wooded. So they had building material and firewood. So 7,500 officers and men uh, were quartered in and around this area. So at the end of the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. his senior officers had gathered together because they were not being paid. They were threatening to take over the government to get paid. Well, Horatio Gates and Washington were not close friends, as you might guess. Gates was the influence behind the Newburgh conspiracy. Young lieutenant, and he said lieutenant in those days, got word to Washington about this meeting. He came to the Kentoma, the temple building, the public building as they called it, and that's where he made the speech, um, which didn't do very well. Is after that, the gesture of taking the letter out of his pocket and not being able to read it, saying, gentlemen, as he put his glasses on, you're aware I've grown gray in the service of my country. I now discover I'm going blind as well. And he puts his glasses on. You know, that gesture was the equivalent of Roosevelt wheeling himself out for a meeting. And it worked. Henry Knox was at the meeting. Washington left. Knox said, are you going to let him down? So essentially, the Newburgh conspiracy was quelled with that presentation up here on the hill. Mm. So this particular site that you're on started in uh, officially in 1930. When Washington's award, the badge of military merit, was awarded during the Revolutionary War. Which was the, the forerunner of what we now know as the Purple Heart. It's the inspiration for it, by gosh, yeah. And all but got, got forgotten. Pershing wanted to bring back the ideals of that award in 1918. It didn't happen. But finally, when General MacArthur became chief of staff in 1926, he began the process. And on February 22nd, 1932, the modern Purple Heart Medal was born, basically. Okay. So for the bicentennial of Washington's birth, the nation and, of course, New York State were very busy doing 
programs, commemorations, celebrations, and so forth. And the thought was to preserve Temple Hill, which is the place we're located. So the local veterans, along with congressmen, former Captain Hamilton Fish, formed a committee to pay homage to World War I veterans by awarding them Purple Hearts. The first problem was finding people to make the awards to. They advertised in local newspapers, if you're wounded or get a meritorious service citation certificate, send the information to the materials that are collected and taken to Washington. They were authorized and approved. Then they came here for the ceremony on May 28, 1932. So really what they began here 90 years ago to recognize sacrifice, and we continue today. Uh, and then that led, in the mid-1990s, to a letter to the editor of a local paper. Is there a place to honor per plot recipients? And if not, why couldn't it be here? And the result was a genesis group was formed, four men among them, Senator Bill Larkin. Uh, Senator went to Governor Pataki, uh, a history buff. They were authorized to build this facility here, first dedicated November 10th, 2006. And that's how we just got to this location, harkening back to the war, made the Revolutionary War through its rebirth, so to speak, uh, as the Purple Art Medal, and then by the recognition on these very grounds, uh, what they would have called the Great War, we now honor all those who have been awarded the Purple Heart. When I first met you, I was surprised to understand that there's no national registry that the government keeps of Purple Heart recipients. Correct. There's no records of the recipients themselves, but the data are not shared. So our, our mission is to collect, preserve, and share the stories of Purple Heart recipients. And the best way we demonstrate that is through the Roll of Honor, a computerized database available here in the hall or online at our website, which is www.thepurpleheart.com. And as you mentioned, there's no comprehensive list. So that Roll of Honor is built by voluntary enrollments that come from veterans, themselves recipients, their families, or their friends. And as difficult as the process is, it's actually a fairly good sample. It runs from 1862 to 2020. Wow. The first recipient, Warren J. Coase, wounded April 6, 1862 in Charlotte, Tennessee. Seventy years later, he applied for his award of Purple Heart for his injuries. So it's a fairly good database in that regard. All 50 states, Puerto Rico, Guam, Samoa, the Philippines, and two lone Australians. Our first African-American recipient, Eli Biddle, was invited back in 1938 to the 75th Gettysburg reunion, and there he is wearing his Purple Heart. Uh, how many people roughly are in that registry today that you guys you, meet? You know, we, we estimate about 2 million people. We we're, about, we're about 10, 11% of that. Oh, okay. This facility mm -hmm. is more than just that database. So Correct. give us a 10,000-foot view of what this facility is. The building that was originally built was an L-shaped configuration, a long corridor, a timeline, if you will, and a main gallery. In 2015, because of concerns about representation, it, the interiors were redone. In 2019, uh, then-governor of the state of New York authorized a grant of $17 million to expand and enhance the facility. And as a result of that expansion, we closed in November 2019, reopened a year later on Veterans Day 2020. We almost doubled the footprint of the building and tripled the exhibit space that we now have. Mm. The difference being before with out-and-back configuration, now you take a journey. Everyone begins their journey by taking the oath. They make a decision to join the military, they're drafted, and they oath, I hereby swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, and so forth. And that first gallery introduces you to that experience. 
a timeline of Americans' conflict in the 20th and 21st centuries, branch cases for branches of service, and something unique, we have kiosks that take you through the journey in the words of the recipients. We found 20 recipients who may either have interviews or diaries and letters, and as you start there, you find out why did this person join the military? What was the, con what the context of that joining? The next gallery space you go to, it's the day of the incident. How did you get wounded? Then care and treatment, road recovery, and our last gallery with the interactives that include that is called the ultimate sacrifice. We'll now walk through a journey with two Purple Heart recipients from their enlistment to the day they were wounded, their immediate care thereafter, and their journey back to normal, if we can call it that. I have to warn you, some of this material is a bit graphic. First Lieutenant Robert B. Montero, U.S. Army, joined ROTC, which is Reserve Officer Training Corps, while in college. Upon graduating in 1968, he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Army. While serving as an infantry officer, he applied for flight school and passed the qualifying exam. He was then sent to flight school to become a helicopter pilot, and after completing his training, he was sent to Vietnam in May of 1970. So we took off out of the air base in Philadelphia and flew, and I think we stopped off in Tokyo was our first stop. on so 707 in those days, and it was uh, all coach configuration and full. Every seat had a body in it. I was sitting next to a couple of enlisted guys. I was, what, in 1970, I was 24. He probably was 19 or 20, and he was scared to death. And of course, you know, he started talking to me, and here I am, the officer, I'm playing the role that I'm supposed to support him, which I did, you know, and I was just as scared as he was, you know. And of course, it, you, I wasn't supposed to show that, and I didn't. You know, I was the officer, I was the uh, leader. My first impression of Vietnam, as I tell many people, the heat hit me like a hammer. Just, it was so hot, and the air was so thick. It was incredible. It caught my breath. It was so, so thick. And, of course, all the activity going around, I looked around and then started walking down the stairs. And uh, was put into what they call a holding unit until my company was to come down. The company I was assigned to was going to come down the next day to pick me up. And I remember that my first night there being in a small building with a screen door, hot. I was on the top bunk, hot, humid. I could hear the artillery in the distance and the rockets going off in the distance. I didn't sleep that much that first night. And it was hot and humid, and uh, I was nervous. I wasn't sure what to expect. First Lieutenant Montero was a scout pilot flying a mission to identify enemy activity and gun emplacements. His helicopter was shot down by 51 caliber machine gun fire. He was seriously injured and his crew chief and observer were both killed. Lieutenant Montero was unaware of the details of this incident until he had a chance encounter and communication with another soldier. And I got an email message from uh colleague of mine who I had not had contact with and lost contact with. And I wasn't quite sure who he was. It was 35 years later. I think he called me and we started talking. 
And I'm not sure if it was the first phone call or the second phone call. He finally told me, he says, do you know what really happened? I said, all I know is that I was shot down and my helicopter rolled over on my side. I was pinned down in the helicopter. My crew chief behind me was killed and so was my observer. Uh, he said, that's true. He said, do you remember telling the, uh, the ARPS, the Aerofs, the guys that pulled you out, that you were drowning? I said, no. I said, I wasn't in, why would I be drowning? It was, you know, I was on a hillside. He says, yeah, that's true. He said, you were drowning in the blood of your observer. I was pinned down, face down. How long, I don't know. It might have been a few minutes. It might have been several minutes. Uh, they were both dead. I think my crew chief was killed on instantaneously. Uh, for some reason or other, when I was in therapy, something slipped out about, I think the shell came through the console and blew his head off. But this was 35 years later. Lieutenant Montero was medevaced from the crash site and taken to Da Nang. He was later transferred to Japan before leaving to be brought back to the States for further treatment at St. Alban Naval Hospital in New York. I remember somebody wheeling me on a gurney someplace, and I assume it was in a hospital or something, but I remember looking at my arm and saying, gee, that looks like raw meat laughing, that was it. And the next thing I remember is <clears throat> the hospital in Japan, which was Camp Sama. And I was having a dream, and I woke up in the middle of the dream, and my, the, uh, the guy next to me in the next bed said, wait, you know, I started yelling, Bob, wake up, you're dreaming, you're dreaming. And I woke up, and from that point I start remembering. How many days that was later, I don't know. Most of my wounds were from the crash. I had no... None of my wounds are related to any arms, small arms fire. Even though my crew chief and my uh, observer both, I was told, took arms, small arms fire, their bodies were riddled. I wasn't. Mine were all from the shrapnel, from the, the metal flying in the helicopter, and from the crash itself. Oh, wounds in my right shoulder. I left here, I have a small wound. My left leg, I have shrapnel wounds. My right leg and part of my calf was missing. Small part of the right calf was missing, which I didn't realize until I got to the Naval Hospital in uh, New York City and they took the cast off. And then uh, it was like I was shocked. I saw the scar on my leg and I also had a compression fracture of the back. Uh, according to the medical reports that I read, I had a contusion, which is black eyes, and I had shrapnel in my fingers too. Small, you know, I can see the scars. I think they did a probably damn good job for all practical purposes. I should have been killed. <clears throat> I shouldn't have survived that, but I did. And in the Naval Hospital, they were very, very good. <clears throat> the nurses were excellent, the lieutenants that took care of me. Uh, she was very good. Uh, and I had no complaints about the medical care. Lieutenant, later to become Captain Montero, commented later in his life that he felt that he should have been killed when his helicopter crashed. Because he survived, he said that he considered September 15th to be his second birthday as it was the day his life began again. I was told that uh, in the therapy that I've been in is that it's, I was frozen in time. So it's up until the time I found out <clears throat> about what had happened, actually happened. Uh, my body 
according to my therapist, didn't process that incident. I was still sort of, my body was still living back then in 1970, although intellectually I knew that it wasn't. <clears throat> but there were certain effects. Uh, when I was in therapy with another therapist years earlier, he asked me one day, he says, why do you hold your breath? I said, I don't know. And all of a sudden, when I found out what had happened, I realized that it sort of connected because anytime I was in a tense situation, I would hold my breath. Uh, so I've learned now when I, when I get tense, I, I tell myself, breathe. You know, I actually have to think about breathing and breathe because I'll still do it sometimes. Um, most people don't know, and there are a lot of what I call the walking wounded who have no physical scars, don't have the Purple Heart probably, and have endured combat and war. And uh, it left them emotionally scarred. And the general public has a tendency to not be as sympathetic, I think, as somebody who's wounded, especially if you have an appendage missing. That's always helpful. But um, if they don't see the scars and they don't see the wounds, they say, oh, Forget it. It's not all that bad. But it, uh, it lingers. It stays there. Specialist Lisa A. Kelly, U.S. Army Operations Enduring Freedom, Wounded in Action, June 1, 2007. Lisa Kelly joined the Army after conferring with her cousin, who was in the military, and to broaden her horizons beyond the farm fields of Ohio. After basic training, she went on to advanced training, her original interest in becoming an animal care specialist as there were no openings for six months, she switched to intelligence and completed her 16 weeks advanced training in Arizona in September 2005. She was deployed to Afghanistan in October 2006. I'd always thought about joining the service, but it's not, there's not a big military recruitment where I grew up, so it's just something Everyone always pushed college, so that's the direction I went. Um, my cousin, who's five years younger than me, actually had joined the Army in October of 2004. And when she came home on leave over Christmas is when I talked to her about it and decided that I probably should be the route I should go. It's always something I wanted to do, start it before I get too old. and go see what there is out there. I always enjoy traveling. I joined the military, the Army, in um, February, uh, February 25th of 2005. I went to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood and oh, that was a very long 10 weeks. Uh, it wasn't really, everyone says the drill sergeants yelling at you is the rough part, but I think the hard part was me. For me, it was just being away from my family and not knowing anybody. I enjoyed 
might be crazy, but I did actually enjoy most of the physical training and all the different activities that we did. Um, and the drill sergeant yelling didn't really phase me. So luckily I got into a platoon where most of us were actually older joining the military. So we have a little bit of life experience behind you. And I really think that helped a lot with being able to cope with all the stress they put you in. Specialist Kelly was on a patrol to check on a suspected IED, an improvised explosive device, when a second command detonated IED went off underneath her Humvee. The vehicle was flipped over by the force of the blast, killing the truck commander, Sergeant Charles R. Browning, and wounding four other soldiers, including Specialist Kelly, Although suffering head injuries, a fellow soldier pulled Kelly from the Humvee as she was unable to move on her own. While we were heading to the reported IED, we actually had drove over a second IED. Um, it was command detonated, so there was somebody sitting on the other end of the wire that hit the button, and it hit the right under the TC seat. Um, he didn't make it. He had flipped the truck upside down and on the opposite side of the road in the ditch. I just started to realize what had happened because I was unconscious and when I woke up and then they were also firing small, we had small arms fire coming at us. I had tried to move my legs, I couldn't move my legs so and I had what I thought was blood running down my face, but I guess it was transmission oil or transmission fluid, something like that, running down my face. So since I couldn't really move my legs, I was just going to try and concentrate on getting the gauze out to put on my face and wait for uh, help to arrive. Because we were taking small, arm fi small arms fire, they wouldn't land the medevac at the scene. So they had to load all five of us up into the Humvees and take us back to the base where we could be medevaced from there. I remember sitting in the truck waiting to go back to the base. Um, the medic tried to give me, an, as the truck was taken off, the medic was going to try and start a morphine line. I told him to get away from me because I'm terrified of needles. <laughs> and he wasn't going to stick me with the needle when the truck was moving. So. Um, Next I remember is being loaded up on the medevac chopper to go back to Bagram. Following immediate attention to her wounds, Specialist Kelly was medevac to Bagram, Afghanistan, where she was stabilized and awarded her Purple Heart before being flown to Lonstol, Germany. In Germany, she received further treatment and new clothing before being sent to Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland and then Fort Bragg, North Carolina, from being injured in Afghanistan to arriving at Fort Bragg took only five days. But during that time, Specialist Kelly had traveled 8,682 miles. It was June 6th then when I finally flew into Fort Bragg, down at Womack Hospital at Fort Bragg. And um, they took me to the ER and then took me to surgery again. And my parents were there when I did get off the plane in the bus to Fort Bragg, so it was good to see them. 
Uh, they didn't get to see me long before they took me away, but they saw I was there. So, and I actually stayed in the hospital until June 20th. Had another surgery at that point, and so it's up until the 20th. I've had. So I had three surgeries by the time I got out of the hospital, June 20th of 2007, and I've had three since then. I had shattered my right kneecap. It was actually, the knee was blown open from the force of the explosion coming up under my feet. Uh, so I shattered my re right kneecap, blew it open. Uh, they removed part of the kneecap, screwed the rest of it together. Um, Broke my right foot in four or five spots. Um, broke my left tibia. And I had shrapnel wounds underneath my left kneecap that shredded stuff in there. Excuse me. And um, had to, some shrapnel and burn marks to my lower part of both legs. Nothing real severe. Um, and then shrapnel wounds to my face. Uh, the Doctors there did a very good job stitching me up, so you really can't see them all that much. The process of healing does not stop with surgical repairs and medical treatment. It continues through an often lengthy process. For Specialist Kelly, part of that process included coming to grips with survivor guilt, such as wondering why Sergeant Browning died while she survived, as well as adjusting to the physical limitations and lifestyle changes. The trauma from the accident on June 1st, um, emotionally, it was very difficult to not be able to be there anymore and make, you know, do my job. Um, there was a lot of Why'd I make it and why didn't he? Because um, he did have two small children and a wife. And I think that was the hardest part for me is knowing that he had children and I didn't. So, you know, why would he be the one to go and not me or someone else who didn't have children? At first I was very angry a lot, all the time. Um, but once again, having Greg, my husband there, to talk to, and he's been in this situation before. It wasn't his first deployment, and it wasn't his first time having, unfortunately, having a friend pass away. Um, it is a lot easier to be able to talk to somebody who knows exactly what you're talking about. Um, and then the trauma to my head when I hit my head and stuff, my memory. I don't think most people notice that I forget, but for me, it's very frustrating that I forget little things or will forget words. But I think the hardest part for me is my physical limitations. As minor as they are, you know, I can't run anymore. I can't kneel and squat, you know, do the basic things that you everybody always takes for granted. We began our program tonight with a question about how we feel about the 4th of July. It's really a question of class, not socioeconomic standing, but the true character of a person. Now, our military is about 1% of the population. 
These are the folks who always have been willing to put their lives on the line for the rest of us. Why would you do that? Because we love this country. The American dream and the freedom that we fought and some have died to preserve. Think about that the next time you hear someone run our country down. Happy belated 4th of July. Our thanks tonight to Patrick O'Donnell, author and historian, Anita Padella, director, National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, Peter Bedrosian, director of programs, National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, Justin Petrisky, National Purple Heart Hall of Honor, specialist Lisa Kelly for her personal commentary on her service and injuries, and Lieutenant Robert Montero, who is now unfortunately deceased, for personal commentary on his service and injuries. And, of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may get them on the air. You can drop me an email at vets at wjffradio.org. And don't forget, if you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or need to speak with someone, here are some numbers to remember. The Veterans Crisis Line 1-800-273-8255, press 1 to speak to someone. Send a text message to 838255 to connect with a VA responder. Or start a confidential online chat session at veteranscrisisline.net slash chat. Don't forget, Let's Talk Vets is now widely available as a podcast. You can download it at wjffradio.org or your favorite source for podcasts. So until our next formation, thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed.